if we're really serious about living simply and giving generously, then you're going to ask the question, well, why should I? And one answer we want to give you today is joy. For the sake of joy. And you're thinking, okay, living sacrificially for the sake of joy? Well, that's why we have Pastor Paul to unpack that. So let's give, let's give him a warm hand as he comes up here. I am, uh, again, very excited to be here, and uh, I enjoy coming. I enjoy seeing familiar faces, uh, the regulars that, uh, that I remember that have been involved with the eye clinic. And uh, for so many of you who've been involved in World Impact, even before I was in Oakland, um, I just applaud you for this, the constant companionship and fellowship. The series, um, you know, Living Simply, Giving Generously, is really near and dear to my heart. Um, I am often asked, and you guys in ministry will know this. Actually, everybody asks this question. They ask you, um, how's ministry going or how are things going? And um, it's funny because uh, the natural thing to say, everything is good, right? We always say everything is good. Um, Sometimes things aren't good, um, and we still say things are good. And... um, it may seem like it's a lie, but it's actually it shouldn't be. Uh, sometimes things are so good that uh, you, you're kind of scared because they're so good and you feel like, wow, you know, there's not a lot of challenge there. I, I want to tell you something about, um, about how I respond to that. You know, when, when I think about how are things going for me, uh, there are a lot of difficulties that happen in ministry and in my life. And nothing, you guys are probably wondering now, what is he talking about? Is he dying? You know, no, there, there's, there's nothing really critical, but there's, you know, there's always problems that, that crop up. You know, we're trying to secure a location in Richmond, you know, and it's going through some court issues, not on our part. You know, things are they're happening that, that aren't really like really cheerful news, but I, I really enjoy it. And see, this is the point I want to make is that Um, Christian life isn't about eliminating problems. Christian life is not about excluding difficulties. Christian life is about contentment. It's about being excited, whatever God gives you, being completely okay with it. Um, It's not to say, oh, oh, I'm getting beaten up. I'm happy, I'm happy. It's not about pretending that you're enjoying something that isn't enjoyable, but always seeing God in everything that happens. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a main point I want to make today, and, um, and, and I'm going to use a little bit of Scripture, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a, a, a story from Scripture, then a story about an individual. Um, but I want to start off by saying that the reason I do what I do, the reason why we care about other people and why you care about other people should not be generated out of guilt. Your generosity should never be generated out of guilt. Your love for people should not be because you have so much, you feel guilty and you want to give away, you know, some it so other people feel happy. Your, your love for people really comes purely because God loves people and because God sees something special in everyone. There is a, um, 
fascinating passage that we, we are all very familiar with called the Sermon on the Mount. And I've, I share this often, but um, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 uh, clearly states that Jesus gave this message on a mountain, right? But then you go over a couple of books to Luke, and in Luke chapter 6, there's almost an identical message given in Luke, but Luke is very clear that this message is on the plain. There's a flat area, right? And so Luke, is, Luke actually he states it. He comes down to a level area, and he said, blessed are you who are poor. You know, and so this, this idea that Matthew, absolutely positive this was on a mountain. Luke, absolutely positive this was on a flat area. And so you look at these two messages and say, well, is it, is it possible one of them was delusional? Was it possible one of them just forgot what day it was and mixed it up? See, I, I think it's neither. I think it's a message that Jesus gave so often that one remembered it when it was on a mountain and one remembered it when it was on a flat area. That's the only explanation for it. And so then you look at the message and you go, well, if this is a message that wasn't just a Chinese New Year message, it wasn't just a, you know, you know, a one-time message about, you know, an earthquake that happened. This was a message that he gave often. If one person could record it on the mountain, one person records it on a plane, somebody probably records it on the ocean or on the sea. If all these people heard this, Jesus gave this a lot. And what is the message what is the point of the message that Jesus gives that we call the Sermon on the Mount? Well, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, it starts off with this thing we call the Beatitudes. Now, it doesn't make a lot of sense because when we hear that, we say, oh, this is the kind of attitude that we are to be. So they're called Beatitudes. But I don't know if you guys know this. That word is not, that's not what that word actually means. The, the reason why we call it the Beatitudes is really from uh, this is just some, I don't really know all this stuff, I just researched it, but there, there's a, it's from the Latin Vulgate, uh, beatitus, which is a, it's a Latin word, and somehow that got transliterated into beatitudes. What that word really means is, uh, is Greek, makarius. Makarius means to be blessed by God. Now follow me on this. You know in the Old Testament when we talk about God with you, Emmanuel, God being with you, makarius is the same word in Greek. It's about God being with you or God blessing you. God is taking you through something. Now, this is very important. Understand this context. So everything you read in the Beatitudes, it's not about being. It's about, it's about God is with you in this circumstance. Okay. So, so if you have, you have this, 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 this dialogue where he talks about blessed are the poor in spirit, Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In all those cases, uh, it is more like God is with you. God is with you when you're meek. God is with you when you're hungry. God is with you when those persecute you. Now, the reason why this is important is this. We often look at these passages and we look at them as an as a imperative, as a command. We look at it and says, oh, God wants me to be more meek. I just, I, I, I just have to be more weak, kind of meek and quiet. God wants me to be a peacemaker. I know I always rile things up. I need to be, I need to be that. We, we look at it and we say, this is an imperative. God is commanding me to love the poor. God is commanding me to be like them, to be poor. God is commanding me to kind of endure these things. But that's not what this is. 
This, this is not a command. We're not a commanded to do these things. He's saying, you are blessed. He says, God is with you in this circumstance. These are also not goals. It's not a goal in your life to be these things. It's not say, oh, if I could. It's not a checklist either. It's not say, oh, if I could be meek, if I could, you know, if, if, if I could be merciful. Well, we all want to be. The, now, 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 it's not that it's bad to be these things. But I, all I'm saying is in this passage and in the Luke passage, Jesus is not saying to try to achieve this. He's not saying to, 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 if you can do all these things, you're super Christian. He's not saying that you have to do these things. All he is doing is stating fact. And this, this is what I love about this. He is stating a fact. And what he's saying, God is already with you when you're in these circumstances. God is already with you when things are, you know, just desperate in your life. And God is with you. In fact, uh, the people that heard Jesus say these things, the people that he was speaking to in the crowds, when, when they talked about being in prison and, you know, and being oppressed and, and, and being in difficult situations, they understood it as themselves. They understood what he was talking about. And maybe we don't have exactly the same context, but I rewrote the Sermon on the Mount. I rewrote the Beatitudes kind of using something that might have made more sense to us in our day. Now, this isn't like my version of the Bible, but this is just give you an idea of what, what people who heard Jesus might have heard. Blessed are the three billion people that live on less than $2 a day. Blessed are those who are dying of HIV, of cancer, because of their proximity to God. Blessed are the sick and suffering because they will encounter God. Blessed are the high school dropouts, those with only GEDs. God is with them. God is with the single mothers that got pregnant too early. God is with the illegal immigrants that are willing to pull weeds all day and wait in front of Home Depot hoping for work. God is blessing them. God is with them if they're handicapped. God is with them if they're deformed, if they're ugly, if they're bald. God is with you if you're a failure. God is with you if you're a felon. God is with you if you have way too much debt and you can't seem to climb out of it. God is with you if you're working at minimum wage or if you're out of work. God is with you. You see, that's what people would have heard when Jesus gave that sermon. They, they were talking to them. And then Jesus says something that we often misunderstand. The very next passage in the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5.13. You are the salt of the world. You're the light of the world. Salt of the earth, light of the world. Remember that? Now we look at that and we often think that he's referring to Christians. And in a way he is. But in more specific context, he's referring to the people he just talked to. You follow me on this? Now watch. He, he says that, you know, everybody, all believers are the salt of the, you know, salt of the earth, light of the world. We are, we are supposed to look different. We're supposed to act different. In fact, we are the things that are supposed to draw God, people to God. 
God uses people. God used Jesus to draw humanity to himself. God uses us to draw non-believers to himself. That is true and that is purposeful. But he's saying specifically, if you are in this circumstance, if you are going through these very difficult issues in your life, he's saying, God's with you because you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Isn't that incredible? He's saying to the very desperate poor, he's saying to those who have very little resources, those in very difficult circumstances, bad, I'm with you because you are going to be brighter and saltier than anyone else. He's saying in your most difficult circumstance, you have a greater impact on an unbelieving world than somebody who's got everything else. See, this is important for us. See, because oftentimes we think that... um, those in desperate situations really, uh, you know, uh, they need to get out of that circumstance. Yes, yes, there is a sense that we don't want people to suffer, but that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, although your circumstance is difficult, you have a greater impact because of that. Because you are born poor or, 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 or you had less education or you have, you have no job or, 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 or lowly job, Because of the peace and joy in your life, you have a greater impact on the world. You see, listen, this is is why I love doing urban ministry. It is not to change people's circumstances. It is not to bring people out and say, no, everybody move out of West Oakland and move to Moraga Valley. It is not about moving or leaving. It's about being content with what God has given you and being able to have peace and joy in that circumstance. I know, I know some of you here are suffering too. But some of you are, are, are doing well. And are living in relative peace. And you may be a light to your neighbor. To your neighborhood. To the people around you. To people at your job. But I would say. But I would say that if you had less. And still had that peace and joy. You would be a greater impact. And the challenge then is, so where do we, what do we do? What, what, what is it about our life? Let's say you're not in that dire circumstance. Does that mean you are not salt and you're not light? No, it's about, it's about understanding the value of people. It's about understanding those who are in those circumstances to go and share with them, but also to encourage them that they are having an impact on the world around them. And someday, maybe one of you will be there. Maybe one day, you will come down with an illness. Maybe some of you already have that. Maybe someday, you will lose your job. Your family will be dysfunctional. And you, your communications will get bad with the people you care about. Or you, so you'll do one huge mistake, and you'll be in a difficult circumstance. And God is saying, when that happens... Remember, how you endure it makes you salt and light. You see, I, I, I think when we talk about living simply, it's about being content in whatever circumstance. That's what we see in Scripture. And I want to go into this, this passage about Paul. Um, it, it's, in, it's just really in his entire book, of the book of Philippians. Paul writes this book... 
this letter to the Philippians while he's in jail in Rome. And I'm, I'm sure you've studied it at some point. But this is a fascinating letter. It is written at a time when he himself is in prison. But while he's in prison, he's chained to a Roman guard. And um, Paul, in his testimony that's found there in, in um, Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, he says, Now I want you to know, brothers... Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it is becoming clear throughout the whole Roman guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not of sincerity, supposing that those that they stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. What does it matter? The important thing is that every day, whether by false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Paul's in prison. He's locked up. He's, he's chained to a Roman guard, and all he can think of... Listen, if you were to ask Paul, hey, how you doing? How you doing, Paul? He might say he's doing good, but he's not saying good because he's happy with his circumstance. You see, you see, this goes back to what I was saying in the beginning. When, when you ask Paul, say, hey, how you doing? He's not, he's not going to say, I enjoy being chained to a Roman guard. I, I enjoy having someone stuck next to me every time I wanted to go to the bathroom or want to cook a, a sandwich. He, he's not happy with that circumstance. But what he is, he's rejoicing because he has this peace about him that he knows is making a difference. And he says, in fact, I'm so encouraged Because it's made clear to everyone, including the palace guard. This word for the palace guard is pectorium. This is the group that we believe. These weren't normal guards. These weren't guards like, you know, you know, uh, Officer Williams comes and arrests you. These were, this was part of the house of Caesar. These were the royal guards. These were the future Caesars. These were the generals. These were the princes. These are the people that we believe um, took out Caligula, and these are, these are guys that, that did some major things during this time in the Roman Empire. And they were attached or assigned to be chained to Paul. And so Paul would walk around, and uh, they would say, hey, uh, I heard about you. What, what did you get? What are you in here? What, you, did you do something bad? And Paul said, yeah, yeah, no. I, you know what it was? It's, uh, I kind of spoke out against Nero. You know, because I, I believe there's one king, Jesus Christ. And uh, let me tell you, man. This is, and so he would be able to tell his story to this guard. They would come to him, and, and then they get chained to him. And they go, okay, no, I don't want to hear anymore. No, 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 you need to hear a little bit more. It's not like they could leave, right? So he, could, he would just keep talking to him. He would tell them. He said, you know what? I'm actually, I'm writing this letter, actually. I, let me tell you a little bit about this letter I'm writing. And he would read to them. He said, oh, I love this letter. This kind of spells it all out. And he would probably read to them. Part of chapter 2, verse 5. He's talking about Jesus and the advantages. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant. 
being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him, exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above all other names. That is name, the name of Jesus Christ, every knee would bow in heaven. Not Nero, Jesus Christ, everyone would bow here on earth and under the earth. And every tongue would acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so he would, he would tell these things to these guys that were attached to him. And he would tell them about Jesus. But they would watch him. See, this is the important point. They would watch Paul in his circumstance. And Paul was never... Listen, he... Let me, let me, take, let me take a little side note here. There was a strange week that happened to me about two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, for some reason, uh, three people came to visit me. They, they called, made an appointment, and wanted to just visit with me. Uh, one guy was from Sacramento, and, um, and the other two were actually artists that were traveling through the area. And uh, who was the third guy? Well, all three of them came to me, and they, they kind of asked exactly the same question, so it was kind of wild for me. Okay. And this is a question that I actually respond to more often than you would think. People come up to me and ask, you know, I, I want to do something for God. I want to change my life. I want to go into ministry. You ever heard that term? I want to go into ministry. And, it, and it's, 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 it usually comes from somebody who maybe works a job that becomes very mundane or maybe has an employer which... They just don't like, or maybe it's a transitional time where they've they've ended one job and they're trying to think of of what they want to do, and they want their life to be meaningful, which is important. And so these guys came to me and asked me, uh, you know, what they what I thought they should do with their life. Now, let me tell you this: I, I I believe that God calls us all into ministry, but ministry is not necessarily a vocation. You are all called to be Christ-like, to be good neighbors, to be good friends, to be good husbands, to be good, good wives, to be good parents. This is ministry. Being Christ is what you do. And how you do it and where you do it doesn't really matter. Whatever God has gifted you to do, whatever he's molded you to do, created you to do, taught you to do, do it for the glory of God. Ministry happens. It's not that you go and do ministry and then 5 o'clock you go home. <laughs> ministry is what you do all the time. Your vocation is what you do, maybe to make a living so you can support other ministries or to support your life. But your life is a ministry. Did you know in the Bible there is no word for spiritual in the Old Testament? There wasn't a spiritual life and then a non-spiritual life. It wasn't about you go to work for your non-spiritual pagan life and then you go to the temple for your spiritual life. For God, it's all one thing. Life is about living in the spirit. There's no, there's no compartmentalizing. There's no separation of when you are spiritual and when you're not. You are spiritual if you're in Christ. And so when you're working, when you're, when you're acting, when you're living, you, you, you live out whatever God gives you to do, and you do it for the glory of God. See, the point is this. You may not, you may not all feel like you're in the place that you want to be in your work, in your life. 
but you need to find contentment in that. Maybe there's opportunities to change, but in life, being a child of God, there is, there is joy and there is peace. There, there, it is already a great situation, and you need to find that. You need to see that because the world is watching. The world is looking at you, and, he's, and they're trying to understand the definition of your God based on your life and how you live it out. And, it, and if, you, if you feel frustrated with your job because you want to do more ministry, well, do more ministry. Come home and, and go visit your neighbor. Bake a pie or learn how to bake a pie. Do, do whatever it takes to be a minister in the context that God has given you. You work at a liquor store. I, I know maybe you say, well, I shouldn't really be working. You know, find a way to give God glory wherever you are. I just think we, we kind of get caught up in thinking that ministry is only when you're in full-time ministry working for an organization, you know, and getting paid by a church or a Christian organization. I, listen, I, I, I appreciate you guys that support what we do. I appreciate the partnership that we've built up with Christian laymen. It is, it, is, it is about doing it all together. It's about, and, and I will make you this promise. You know, as long as I'm involved with World Impact, we will operate with the utmost integrity and truthfulness. We will, we will, use, we will use resources in the best way we, we know to, to, to bring out the greatest impact to, a, to an unbelieving world. I mean, I don't even know what that all means, but I just sense that's what I, I, I know this is where I am. I know this is what I do. When you ask me how I, I, if I like what I do, I love it because this is what I try to do every day. I try to look at what resources come in and what ministry opportunities, and I say, how can we, how can we magnify? How can we, how can we invest and be good stewards of this and create kingdom? How do we accelerate church and make a difference in people's lives? You know, I, I, I wanted to share more about where we are with the network, but I think you just need to know I, I really am excited for the future. And I don't want to get, I don't want to share fake exuberance. I'm just really happy that we're bringing churches along, that we're bringing, bringing you guys along with us, that you're able to participate. We were talking about Aaron's church in Richmond, and you guys heard him a couple weeks ago. I mean, this is a guy who just loves this community of under-resourced people. And you just say, gosh, he does a better job of loving them than I do. And I just want to support that. I just believe in that. I just want him to be able to do it and never, ever have to lose his focus because he's underfunded. You know what I mean? And I, and I just think that's what's fun about ministry. It, it, it's not about, you know, the, the Old Testament never says... This part is spiritual, this part is not. It's, it's all, you know, when you look in the Old Testament, you, you do have, you have all these passages in the law about temple worship. Oh, you have to have the drapes, you have to have the Ark of the Covenant this way, you know, you have to put the, you have to use a certain kind of incense, you have to have, and, and you say, oh, see, it's always talking about God, and it's talking about temple and worship and church. But you read the Old Testament, there's, there's rules about fabric. There's rules about textiles. There's, there's, rules about, there's rules about mold. Leviticus 17. 
It's about how you deal with mold. It's about everyday stuff. It's not about only temple stuff. It's not only about church stuff. God, when he writes his laws, he says it's about everyday stuff. It's about what you and I do every single day. The Bible is about life in the spirit. And, it, and, and, it's, and it's wonderful. And it's not separated. I am. Um, you know, let me go back to Paul. Um, when Paul lives this life in this kind of prison atmosphere, he says good things are happening all around. I know I'm suffering. He knows he's suffering. You know, Epaphrodites comes all the way to, to talk to Paul, just to ask the question from the Philippians church, how are you doing? And Paul says to him, well, thanks for this money. Thanks for helping me out. You know, I'm doing okay. You know, I, and I sense from what he's saying, there's great things that are happening. I know I'm in prison. But the word is being preached. The people that you think are our enemies, this is the opportunity for me to minister them. And when Paul ends his letter to the Philippians in chapter 4, when he gives his final greetings in chapter 4, verse 21, he says this. Greet all of God's people in Christ Jesus. This is that letter. This is that letter he wrote while he's chained to a Roman guard. And, and he says... You know, every, this is all good. People are preaching more boldly because I'm here. Plus, everybody in Caesar's household is hearing the gospel. These prisoners, these guards are hearing it. He, he, he responds at the very end of this in, in chapter 4, verse 21. Greet all of God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send greetings, especially those who belongs to Caesar's household. Is that incredible? People that he was chained to have become believers. The people that he was, he, was, he was attached to by chains, they became believers so that at the end of this letter that he'd been preparing and drafting, he writes to them and says, hey, everybody here greets you. My friends greet you. I greet you. Uh, all the brothers and sisters in Caesar's household greet you. He's saying, these people who I've been chained to have become believers and they also greet you. See, Paul saw that as an opportunity. It wasn't a burden. It it was a burden. But in him, it was joyful because the gospel was being preached. And, And what I'm trying to say to you is, do things in your life to find this peace and this joy. Living simply and giving generously is a natural outcome of living with this peace and joy. It's, it's never begrudging. It's never guilt-ridden. It is always natural when you live with this peace and joy. I, I want to finish with this story. Um, there is a doctor, and his name is uh, Nathan Barlow. Nathan Barlow was born in 19, I think 1913. He graduated Berkeley and he became a doctor, a missionary doctor, and he went to Ethiopia. Nathan Barlow is not a household name. He started an organization late in his life uh, that dealt mainly with Mossy Foot. And um, Mossy Foot is, is about uh, walking barefoot on volcanic soil. And, it, you know, you, you see some of those pictures of, you know, just some kind of grotesque-looking feet. But this doctor really wanted to do some work. But he actually went to Ethiopia 
not necessarily to champion that cause. He went there just to be a missionary doctor. Right out of college, took his family over there, spent. He died there. He was 91 years old, and he died there. And he served his almost entire life there, except for a couple of times he had to return. Now, the reason I want to bring him up is this. Nathan Barlow was a unique guy because Nathan Barlow never wanted anyone to know the good stuff he did. Interesting. There is a story about him that only emerged uh, after he died. Okay. When he first started doing ministry, he was in an area in India in a tribe called the Barcos. And when he was there, there was an outbreak of yellow fever. And yellow fever is something in America that we get a vaccination for. And so our blood has an immunity to yellow fever, but it's not so in, in other places, especially third world countries. And so he was in this tribal area, and word got out that there was a yellow fever breakout. Okay, And so people were already dying. A couple of these infected men heard about this white doctor that was a couple of villages over in Barco, and they made a journey to go see Nathan Barlow. And when they arrived there, he says, I have no medicine for you, but the medicine that I do have is in my blood. And so he drew out as much blood as he could and, and tried to stay conscious. He let it sit overnight. Now, I don't know all the, 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 the ways they did it, but apparently it's something in the, in the clear serum that, that has the vaccination in it. He drew that out and he injected it into each of those uh, tribal guys that came to him. And, and he cured them from yellow fever. He gave them his immunity, but he made that. This is the amazing part. He made them promise never to tell anyone about that. He said, don't tell anybody I did this for you. You know, don't tell anyone I did this for you. And in fact, um, a, a doctor friend of his who also was a missionary traveled to that region and happened to run into one of these guys or maybe the, uh, the last living one of these guys. And he would come up to people and he would say, I have white man's blood. I have white man's blood. And uh, they would never tell, they, they, the, the natives would never tell any foreigners why they said that. But they would claim to have white man's blood. And, they, and then finally, and this is during the time when Barlow was still alive, his friend finally asked him, what is this about the natives that tell me they have white man's blood? And Nathan Barlow told his doctor friend the whole story of what he did. But he told his doctor friend to promise never to say anything until after he died. Now, why is this important? I, you guys... Guys like Nathan Barlow are my heroes. They're my heroes because they never, ever, they never ever want to be known for what they've done. They never need to put a sign in front of them and, and, and share with people. They, they already have an effect on the people around them. See, I want to give you a challenge today. Would you do an act of kindness? Would you do an act of sacrifice or generosity if no one would ever, ever know about it. Okay. It's challenging. It's challenging to myself. Would, would you be okay with doing an incredible feat of sacrifice of generosity and, and promise never, ever to let anyone know about it? It's tough. It's tough, but it challenges us to sense why are we motivated to do things. 
Is it really for self-preservation? Is it really for, for our own ego? Or is it because we really believe that like Jesus, when he saw those in desperate circumstances, he says, man, you are the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. You, are the, you, you make a difference because of that. And we are motivated because Jesus cared for them. And so we care for people. See, I think it is incredibly hard. It's hard for me. But I challenge myself now daily to think along these terms. Yeah, it, I, I, had a, I, I gave a similar message once at a church, and a guy comes running up to me afterwards, and he goes, he goes to me, he goes, that's exactly what I do. That's exactly what I do. I go around helping people, and I don't tell anybody about it. And I go, you just blew it. Why'd you tell me? And you say, well, I, you know, you, well, if I don't tell you, if I don't tell you about Nathan Barlow, then nobody will be motivated. You know what? Nathan Barlow had an effect on the people around him. He changed the natives. They're, they're, there's a thriving Christian community among the Morsi people in, in Ethiopia because of his work. You see, it's not about what he says because his effect is going to happen on those that you are gracious to and those that you are generous to. In fact, if they know that you don't tell any about it, it has a greater effect. And it may not happen in this generation. It may not happen during your time here on earth. But it will change a life. And that life will be changed for Christ. You will have an effect on somebody and it will be the purest form of the gospel. Isn't that exciting? If you can imagine everyone in this room were to take this week and do acts of generosity and kindness, never to be seen, never to be heard, you would have an effect on a generation that follows you. It may not even take a generation. You will have an effect on people. You will have a greater effect because you're unwilling to announce it. That's wild. See, that's what I want to be. I want to be the hero that no one knows about. You know, I want to be God's hero. You know, I, I want it to be that real in my life. I, I'm so afraid of myself. I'm so afraid that everything I do, I do because I want glory or I want notoriety. I'm so afraid because I know that's the pattern that humans fall into. And I pray and I, and I beg God that, that my, my love for people, my, my care for his word and his scripture are sincere. That I do the things because I know this is what God would want to do. And this is how he acted. Can you imagine a God that would suffer, endure it, live through it, and rejoice about it? Man, it's, it's unthinkable. And that's what he's asked us to be, to be that model. He uses humanity. He uses us to change his world. He didn't leave the world with some great tablet that has this magic words on it. He didn't leave some great video for everyone to watch. He left it. He says, you go out and be my examples. You go out and change your life so drastically, live so sacrificially, so giving, that you will change the world. That was his model. That was his only plan. His absolute Magna Carta, perfect plan was this. And it's going to work. But we have to see it for what it is.
So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you again for our time together. I thank you for, um, Lord, just your words, uh, your thoughts. Lord, and so many things may be running through our heads, and, and I know that uh, we, are, we, are all, we all need to be convicted at our own level. But Lord, your word, your, your, your scripture, your love for us is so clear. Your call in our life is to be Christ. The only hope to bring glory to you is that we would die to ourselves and live through you. Help us to see people the way you see people. Help us to love and sacrifice all that you've given. Help us to be content with whatever we have, whatever circumstance you've given us. Lord, I, I want to be generous. I want to be loving. I want to be kind. I want to be meek. I want to be a peace. I want to be those things because I know that if I'm like that, then you're with me. I pray for, I pray for my friends here, Lord, that you would convict them not out of guilt, Lord, but out of love. Challenge them to live the life you've designed for them to live. There is no mistake in your world. Any mistake is our mistake. I pray that in Christ's name.